to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth, one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Mark, chapter 14, verse 1, as we follow along with today's lesson. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. Now, Mark seeks to sort of give us a a day-by-day type of uh, schedule of uh, the events of uh, Jesus in this last week of his life. And uh, so uh, we have Mark telling us of the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem And uh, we know that that took place um, on Sunday, which we commonly call Palm Sunday. And so in the 11th chapter, he tells us of this triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And then in verse 12 of chapter 11, he says, And on the morrow, or the next day, which would be Monday, when they were coming back to Jerusalem from Bethany, uh, that um, he saw the barren fig tree, cursed it, came to the temple and cleansed the temple, drove out the money changers and those that were selling doves and all. And then verse 20 of chapter 11, and on the morrow, that would be Tuesday, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree was dried up from the roots. And uh, then Jesus talked to them about faith, and he had his confrontation uh, with the uh, religious rulers. And uh, as they were leaving the temple area after the confrontation, and the disciples were pointing out to Jesus the great stones and the buildings, uh, it was then when they got over to the Mount of Olives that he predicted the destruction uh, of the temple. Now, In the 14th chapter, he tells us, Now after two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. So in two days, coming the feast of the Passover the unleavened bread. And this conspiracy of the rulers of the Jews to somehow privately arrest Jesus away from the crowds so that uh, they will not uh, create an uproar. And especially we don't want to do it on the Sabbath day uh, or on on the feast day. Now, what they didn't know is that they weren't in control. 
uh, of these events. Jesus himself is in control. And in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt and God sent Moses to go to the Pharaoh to demand their release and after a series of plagues, God was going to bring that climactic plague upon them, the death of the firstborn throughout the land, including the son of Pharaoh. And as the Egyptians awoke and found the people dead, you remember Moses instructed the children of Israel to take a lamb out of their flock and to slay it, put the blood in a basin and with a hyssop bush, sprinkle it upon the lintels and the doorposts of your house. And the Lord said, when I pass through the land tonight, when I see the blood on the door, I will pass over that house. Hence the word Passover, uh, where the blood was there on the door, the, the house was spared uh, the death of the firstborn because the lamb was a substitute and became, it was a substitutionary death for the firstborn within the house, the blood there on the door. It's interesting, on the little and doorpost would be sprinkled in the shape of a cross. Now, after that, they instituted what was called the Passover feast to remind them of how God delivered them out of Egypt at the time of the Passover. Now, Paul tells us that these feast days and Sabbath days of the Old Testament were only a shadow of the things that were to come. The real substance is Jesus. And so this Passover, though it was a memorial feast, was also... Uh, in anticipation of its fulfillment in Jesus. And thus it was necessary that Jesus be crucified on the day of the Passover. Now, it is important to remember that the Jewish day begins at sundown. And so if we were in Israel practicing Jews, it would already be Monday. It would have been Monday uh, as of 6 o'clock this evening when the sun went down. Uh, then it was when Monday begins and Monday ends at 6 o'clock uh, tomorrow evening uh, when the sun goes down. So they measure time from sundown to sundown. We go from midnight to midnight, but they go from sundown to sundown. And thus, uh, the feast was held by Jesus in the evening, but the next day was actually the day of the Passover. Now, the day before the evening of the feast is when they killed the Passover lamb because they ate the lamb at the Passover supper. And so Mark tells us it was two days till the feast of the Passover, the unleavened bread, and uh, there was this conspiracy to arrest Jesus, and uh, the, not though, however, on the feast day, because they didn't want to create an uproar. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper. Now, we have a slight problem here, in that 
John, when he records this feast in Bethany, he tells us that it took place six days before the Passover. Or on uh, Saturday, it was the day before uh, the um, the uh, triumphant entry of Jesus, and uh, or he puts it six days before the Passover in the thirteenth chapter uh, there of John. Uh, he uh, speaks of this, or twelfth chapter, I beg your pardon, verse beginning with verse one. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus had been dead, and they made him a supper. Mary and Martha were serving. And Mary was the one that took this pound of special ointment, expensive ointment, and anointed the feet of Jesus and so forth, and uh, wiped them with her hair, and the whole house was filled with the aroma. Um, so uh, it could be that Mark is not following a chronological order here, but just remembers the event, and he throws it in at this point because he is now talking about uh, the death of Jesus and this conspiracy to put him to death. Uh, but being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious or expensive, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there was some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? Now, John tells us that was Judas Iscariot who uh, objected. And um, he said it might have been sold for more than 300 pence. Now, a pence was a denarius, which was the uh, wage of a laborer a day's wage for a laborer. So this was almost a year's salary for a uh, laborer, extremely expensive perfume. And uh, he said it could have been sold for 300 pence and we could have given to the poor. And the disciples led by Judas murmured against the act of the woman. Now, John tells us that Judas did not say that because he really cared for the poor. But Judas was uh, sort of the treasure of the group. He kept the money. And John tells us he had been pilfering from the money. So uh, when he saw this expensive ointment, he thought, wow, you know. If I only had that in the sack here, you know, I'd have more to pilfer from. And so uh, he's not the hero that some would make him out to be concerned with the poor. He was very uh, filled with avarice. So Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has wrought a good work on me. For you have the poor with you always. And whensoever you will, you may do them good, but you don't have me always. So leave her alone. Don't give her a bad time. You're always going to have the poor around, and if you want to, help the poor. That's fine. 
but you're not going to have me always, for she has done what she could. And she has come beforehand to anoint my body for the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also which she has done shall be spoken as a memorial of her. So here we are speaking of what she did. Uh, wherever the gospel is preached, this is declared of this work that she had done in giving of this costly ointment, anointing him for his burial. Why this waste? What a horrible thing to say concerning anything that is given to Jesus. Nothing given to Jesus is wasted. Know that. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, this evidently upset him. He was sort of rebuked by Jesus. Let her alone. Don't trouble her. If you want to give to the poor, go ahead and give to the poor. You're going to have them always around here. I'm not going to be here always. She's done this for my burial. And he's, he's upset. And so he went to the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, that is the chief priest, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Remember, they're wanting to arrest him in, secretly, not in front of the crowds. And so they need to catch him when the crowds aren't around. Judas is saying, I'll, I'll lead you to him. And so the promise to give him money. Now the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where will you that we go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent forth two of his disciples and said unto them, Go into the city, and there you will meet a man who is bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say to the good man of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room that's furnished and prepared, and there make ready for us. And so sent a couple of the disciples in to go ahead and prepare the feast for Jesus and his disciples. And when the evening had come, that is the beginning of Passover at sundown, he came with the twelve. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, one of you which eats with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say unto him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? And he answered and said unto them, it is one of the twelve that dips with me in the dish. Now, they made ready the Passover. In the Passover, there were several necessary ingredients to observe this feast. First of all, there was the cup of the Kaddush, which means sanctification or separation. And uh, the head of the family took the cup and he prayed over it and then he drank of it. And uh, then uh, it was shared among the group. Now, the Passover meal itself, 
was usually, and we have the pictures of the Passover, and they're sitting at a table, and they've got uh, beautiful dinnerware on it and silverware and all. And uh, that's not at all what it was like. Uh, they were reclining on the floor when they ate, leaning on their left elbow, eating with their right hand. And, uh, and that's, that was the customary way of eating in those days. They did not have dinnerware. They did not have silverware, but uh, they usually ate with their hands, and that's why there was so much washing of the hands. Three times during the Passover feast, uh, there would be the washing of the hands. And uh, it was carried out only by the person who was to celebrate the feast. And three times he had to wash his hands in the prescribed way. And then they would eat a piece of parsley or lettuce, endive, uh, which was dipped in a bowl of salt water. It was sort of the appetizer to the meal but it was also very significant. The bitterness of the parsley or endive was to remind them of the hyssop bush that was used to sprinkle the blood on the doorpost, and the salty water were the tears that their fathers shed while in slavery in Egypt and of the salty waters of the Red Sea that God divided in order to bring them through. And then there was the breaking of the bread. The middle, they had three loaves and the middle loaf broken. And with the breaking of the bread, uh, a couple of prayers were offered. And then the youngest child is to ask the question, what makes this night different from all nights? And then the eldest member of the family, male member, would rehearse the story of God's deliverance of their fathers out of Egypt and the Passover of the death angel. And then during the ceremony they would sing at this point, Psalm 113 and 14. Now, Psalm 113 through 118 are the Hallel Psalms, uh, the Psalms of praise. And these were sung during the Passover feast. But at this point, they would sing Psalm 113 and 114. And then they would take the second cup. The, the dinner began with a cup of wine, and now is the second cup. It's called the cup of the Haggadah, which is the explaining uh, or proclaiming as they had just rehearsed the story. And now all of those who are present washed their hands in preparation for the actual meal, and then they said grace which was, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, who brings forth the fruit of the earth. Blessed art thou, O God, who has sanctified us with thy commandment and enjoined us to eat unleavened cakes. 
and they would then distribute small portions of the bread. And then they would have these bitter herbs, and they were placed between two pieces of unleavened bread, and then dipped in the karasheth, which was a mixture of dates and nuts and all, which was to remind them of the mortar uh, that was used on the bricks uh, during their slavery. It was called the sop. Now, this is what Jesus was referring to. He who dips in the sop with me, in the kerosene, takes at that time this uh, two pieces of bread with the bitter herbs, dips it in the kerosene. He who dips with me, the same as the one who will betray me. And so the disciples, one by one, begin to ask, Lord, her master, is it I? And uh, John tells us, finally, when Judas said, Master, is it I? Jesus said, you said it, and what you do, do quickly. And he left and went out uh, to uh, consummate the deal that he had made with the high priest. As Judas left, or Jesus said, the Son of Man indeed goes as it is written. In other words, I'm going to die. That, that's, that's already a foregone uh, decision but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed good were it for that man if he had never been born Judas Iscariot goes down in history infamous for his act of betraying our Lord after the meal is eaten the whole lamb, of course, must be eaten. Nothing is to be left. Uh, whatever is left is to be burned. They eat the remainder of the unleavened bread and then a prayer of thanksgiving. And then the second part of the Hallel, they sing together Psalm 115 through 118, and then they drink the fourth cup. And it is believed that this fourth cup is when Jesus took the cup and said unto them, This cup is a New Testament in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will show the Lord's death. In other words, he gave a totally new meaning to Passover. No longer is it to remind you of the sacrificial lamb in Egypt. It's to remind you now of God's sacrificial lamb that was shed for the sins of the world, that through the blood of Jesus Christ you will not have to die for your sins, for he died in your place, and he who lives and believes in Jesus will never die. Then there were two short prayers, and then they would finish with Psalm 136. So uh, in a moment we're going to read that they sang a hymn, and that hymn that they sang was Psalm 136. But as they did eat, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and broke it. And he gave it to them and he said, Take, eat, for this is my body. And he took the cup when he had given thanks and he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of a New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will not drink any more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out 
into the Mount of Olives. Don't you wish they had recordings in those days? Don't you wish you had a recording of Jesus and the disciples? Oh, man, singing a hymn. How I would love to have heard that. How I would love to have heard it. Uh, you might take a quick look at Psalm 136, and you at least have the, uh, the words of the psalm that is sung at the end of the Passover feast. And what is it about? The mercy of God. The oft-repeated refrain is for his mercy endureth forever. And so this was often sung uh, sort of back and forth, like we would divide the auditorium and this part would uh, sing uh, the first part, O give thanks unto the Lord for he is good, and this side would sing for his mercy endureth forever. Let's go through about five verses and you start uh, the, the five over here and you... You've got the easy part. For his mercy endureth forever. You don't even have to look. But uh, uh, let's go ahead and, and let's do it. And, and you get the idea of uh, how often uh, these psalms were sung and uh, back and forth kind of a thing. Okay, here we go. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods. O oh, give thanks to the Lord of Lords. To him alone who doeth great wonders. To him that by wisdom made the heavens. You got it. You make good Jews. <laughs> so, so this is the way it was done. And uh, so Jesus now singing with his disciples concerning the mercies of God. Think of it. He is about ready. Now they had just sung uh, Psalm 118 in which they were singing, bind the sacrifice to the altar. And in just a few hours, he's going to be hanging on the cross. And here they're singing of the prophecy of binding the sacrifice to the altars. And now they're singing of the mercy of God. And here is God's greatest demonstration of his mercy about to be shown in the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. His mercy endureth forever. And thus how significant that must have been that evening. The disciples didn't grab the significance of it, but I'm sure that Jesus recognized the significance of it as he led them in the singing of the mercies of God that endure forever, the mercies of God that are just about ready to be displayed in such a glorious way as Jesus bears our sins and dies in our place. So they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said unto them, all of you are going to be offended tonight because of me. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Fellas, you're all going to be offended because of me tonight. Scripture says smite the shepherd and the shepherd's going to be smitten. The sheep are going to be scattered. But when I'm risen, I'll meet you up in Galilee. 
But Peter said unto him, Although all will be offended, yet will not I. Peter is elevating himself above the other disciples. There has been this ongoing dispute among them concerning greatness in the kingdom of God. Who would be the greatest? They've been arguing over this for several days. It kept coming up until James and John came to Jesus and said, Lord, would you do us a favor? Jesus said, what's that? Well, when you come into your kingdom, can I sit on one side and John on the other side? And the other disciples really got upset with James and John for ask, think of that. Peter no doubt thought, don't they know I'm going to be sitting there on the right hand? <laughs> so when Jesus said, all of you are going to be offended, Peter said, yep, Lord, they may be, but not me. You know, put me on the right side, Lord. I'll stand with you. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you that this day, even this night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently. I mean, he really got emotional and into it now. If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Boasting of his flesh, of his commitment. The Bible tells us, take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. We can only stand by the grace of God and through the help of the Holy Spirit. We need not to point fingers at Peter. Shame on you, Peter, because of your vacillating weakness, because none of us are any better. Without the help and the power of the Spirit, we are nothing and we can do nothing. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That is of any spiritual value. You can do nothing of spiritual value apart from Jesus. So here's Peter boasting in the flesh. And likewise also said they all. They all said, oh Lord, we're going to be faithful to you. And so they came to the place which is called Gethsemane, or the olive press. And he said to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. He was now facing the cross. He had come to the hour. Later he said to Pilate, for this hour was I, did I come into the world. He prayed unto the Father, you wait here and watch. And he went forward a little ways from them and fell on the ground. Notice he was sore amazed, very heavy, and he said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. 
tarry ye here and pray. And he went forward a little further and he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. If it's possible. The Bible tells us that the cross of Jesus Christ is foolishness to the Greeks, but it's a stumbling block to the Jew. The Jews' concept of the Messiah was of a reigning king overthrowing the powers of the world and establishing the kingdom of God. And that is a correct concept of the Messiah. And that will be true when Jesus comes again to establish God's kingdom upon the earth. He will bring down the governments of the world. Daniel's uh, dream or Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream and Daniel's interpretation and then Daniel's vision how that this stone, not cut with hands, smites the image of the great world empires in its feet, and the image crumbles, the empires of men, and the stone grows into a mountain that covers the earth. And so Daniel, in interpreting it, said, And in the days of those ten kings shall the Lord of glory come and establish a kingdom that shall never end. The kingdoms of men were going to succeed one another through the centuries. But God will establish an eternal kingdom, his kingdom, upon the earth. And for that kingdom we long and we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now Jesus is there on the ground praying if it's possible. You see, the cross is an offense to people because there are so many that like to say well there are many ways to reach God and you know everybody comes to God their own way but it really doesn't matter which way you come to God it's that we obey those impulses of our spirit and that we come to God. That's what's important. How we come isn't so important. The cross doesn't say that. The cross says there is only one way that you can come to God. And that's why it offends people. Oh, people get really rankled when you tell them that you don't believe that Buddhists are going to heaven. If Buddhists could go to heaven by doing their prayers and going through their religious routines, then Jesus would not have had to die. If you could go to heaven by being good, Jesus wouldn't have to die. Being sincere in your religious beliefs, Jesus wouldn't have to die. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If man can be saved, by any other means. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. Christianity is very narrow. Admittedly so. But Jesus said, straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Few there be that find it. Broad is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many go in thereat. 
Yes, it is. Very narrow, very straight. And the cross bears witness of that. And he said, Abba, which is a, another word for father. It's a more personal kind of papa or daddy kind of a word. Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Father, you can do anything. All things are possible to thee. Take away this cup from me. This is the prayer of Jesus. Pouring out his heart to the Father. All things are possible to thee. Take this cup from me. But quickly he adds, Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. There we find Jesus setting for us an example in prayer that the purpose is not to get our will done, but the purpose is to get his will done. There are people today that say, if you pray not my will, thy will be done, that's a cop-out. That's a lack of faith. How can they say that when Jesus himself, recognizing that all things are possible with God, and yet not what I will, but your will be done. Later on, we read that Jesus prayed the same prayer three times. There are those that say, if you repeat the prayer a second or third time, it shows you you didn't have faith the first time you prayed. All of this weird teaching on faith, how to get your will done, how to make God your little genie to do your bidding, And they would change the Lord's Prayer to my kingdom come and my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus, submitting himself now to the will of the Father, and he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not pray for just one hour? Watch him pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Oh, isn't that the case? Spirit is ready, but oh, the weakness of our flesh. What I would be, spirit's ready. What I would do for God, the spirit's ready, but oh, the flesh is so weak. And so many times those Resolves are never fulfilled because of the weakness of our flesh. And again, Jesus went away and he prayed and he spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And they really didn't know what to answer him. And so he came the third time and said unto them, Sleep on now. Take your rest. It's enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, at this point, 
there is a possibility of a gap of time between verses 41 and 42. It could be that there is a period of time between this third time when he just comes and he says, go ahead and sleep on. Take your rest. It's enough. The hour's come. And it could be that he sat there for a half hour or even an hour just watching them as they slept. And I believe praying for them. You could not watch with me, but I'll watch you. And I believe that this was the time when he was perhaps just interceding for them, knowing what they're going to go through, knowing the heartache and the pain and the questions that they're going to have. I mean, this is going to be a rough day on them because all of their dreams are going to be shattered when they watch him die on that cross. He hasn't been able to get through to them exactly what the death is going to mean. In fact, they always think when he talks of his death that he's, he's talking riddles. And knowing how that their hopes are going to be dashed, I believe that he just spent some time sitting there watching them as they slept, praying for them. But suddenly there's racket as Judas is leading in the soldiers of the high priest and the officers. And so Jesus said, rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrays me is at hand. And immediately while he was yet speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, take him away and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to Jesus, and he saith, Master, Master, and he kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. What a horrible act of treachery. One of the Gospels tells us that Jesus said, Betrayest thou me with a kiss? Now, again, English language, we have a word kiss. And, you know, you kiss a frog and you kiss a cheek and uh, you kiss the forehead of the babies. But there is also a passionate Type of kiss among lovers. In the Greek, they have different words for kiss. Kisses that are the kiss on the cheek, greet one another with a holy kiss. And so often, even still in the old country, uh, the men, when they greet each other in the street, uh, rather than shaking hands, they embrace and they kiss on each cheek, you know. But then, of course, there were the passionate kisses of the lovers. And that particular Greek word is used here where Judas kissed him, sort of a passionate kind of a kiss. We'll talk more about Judas at a later time, but it were better for that man had he never been born. 
And one of them that stood by drew a sword. John tells us it was Simon Peter, smote off the servant of the high priest, the ear, smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Um, John tells us that the name of the servant was Malchus <laughs> and that Jesus healed his ear, picked it up and put it back on, healed him. And Jesus answered and said, and of course, he, he was, Peter was probably sleepy. He woke up out of his sleep, you know, and, and he, his eyes were heavy. He sound sleep. Here's a lot of racket. Sees him grabbing Jesus, and his first response is to pull out his sword and start to swing. Whoever's in the way, look out. Happened to be Malchus. <laughs> Close miss. Got the right ear. Oof. Someone has suggested that if Peter was right-handed. Malchus was going away to catch his right ear. I don't know. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching. You did not take me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all, that is the disciples, forsook him and fled. All of you will be offended this night because of me. And the disciples all took off. Now there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. There is this speculation, and probably correct, that Mark is giving his, he's inserting his own little personal incident into the account. Mark was at this point probably 12 or 13 years old, and uh, his family, his uncles and all, were involved with Jesus, and, and as a little boy, he probably was sort of hanging around, as young boys often do. And uh, when they grabbed him, his linen coat that he was wearing, he wriggled free, and they believe that this is Mark's little personal insertion. You see, Mark's gospel is written mainly from Mark hearing Peter tell the story. So uh, in Mark's gospel, basically you have Peter's account as Mark tells the stories as he has heard Peter relate them over and over concerning the Lord. And so this is Mark's personal little injection of his own personal involvement in the evening. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with the high priest were assembled the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. And Peter followed him afar off even into the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. So Peter was sticking close by, but not too close. Not close enough to be identified with him, but curious as to what were going to be the results. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witnesses against Jesus, to put him to death, but they could find none. Looking for charges. Looking for someone to bear witness of some 
capital crime that he committed. There were many who bear false witness against him, but their witnesses did not even agree with each other. And there arose certain who said against him, We heard him say that I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I'll build another made without hands. So put him to death, you know. But neither did their witnesses agree together. Now, Jesus did say, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it again. But he was talking about the temple of his body. So they they didn't even have that straight. And the high priest stood up in the midst, getting nowhere, you know. And so he asked Jesus directly, saying, Don't you answer any of these charges that these witnesses are making against you? Don't you respond in your own defense? But Isaiah had said in prophecy, As a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. No defense. But Jesus held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Now, it was the belief in those days that the Messiah would indeed be the Son of God. And that's why the question, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Today the Jews say that the rabbis teach that the Messiah will not be the Son of God, he's a man. But in this book, The Search for the Messiah, uh, Mark shows where the earlier rabbis believed that the Messiah would be the Son of God. And it's obvious here, the high priest was putting it together. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Because it was prophesied of the Messiah that the Lord said unto my Lord, Thou art my beloved Son, this day have I begotten thee. And... Also, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Obviously, prophecy of the Messiah, but he is a son who is given. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, We don't need any further witnesses. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And then some began to spit on him. Isaiah said that he did not hide his face from those who spit on him. In the Orient, that's the the worst insult, uh, is spitting on people. Sometimes we've been over there and people spit at us because uh, they know we're Christians. But it, it, it's, uh, you know, it's just a, a thing of disdain and disrespect. You learn to dodge, though. <laughs> and they, they covered his face and began to buffet him. Now, the body has been (laughs) 
created in a very marvelous way. Uh, we see Sunday after Sunday these quarterbacks getting hit with tremendous blows or a end, you know, catching a pass and then just being creamed. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Mark in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the trial of Jesus. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Mark 14 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. More and more as things are developing in our world, powers of darkness are in control of the world in which we live. There's an increased endeavor to limit and to restrict our liberties as Christians. The real power against these is prayer. God can do the work. God can move the mountains. And so I encourage you to spend more time in prayer, less time in front of the television, more time seeking God, praying, fasting, that we might see the hand of God at work even in this age. May the Lord be with you, watch over and keep you in his love, in Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. For years, Pastor Chuck was asked thousands of questions. This new guy that my mom married, he thinks that the Christian beliefs are foolish, and I was wondering if that's going to like affect my mom's walk. I'm a Christian. I'm trying to fight the addiction of smoking, and are those things going to keep me from going in the rapture? Is it okay to use your tithes and give it to someone who's going on a mission trip instead of giving it directly to church? The Word for Today is pleased to present an ebook called Biblical Counseling by Chuck Smith, listing over 200 topics that include Pastor Chuck's commentary and the scripture references he used. Topics include addiction, business relationships, depression, lawsuits, sexuality, training children, and so much more. 
To download the Biblical Counseling ebook by Chuck Smith, visit thewordfortoday.org and click on the link provided. Or you can call 1-800-272-9673.